Father in heaven, it's been a good week, and we are really thankful for your being with us, for the way that you lead and guide us in our own personal lives and as a church. We know that you're preparing us for your return, the return of Jesus. We're looking forward to that day very soon as we understand it to be. As we talk today more about this most important topic of Christ our righteousness, we pray that you will once again be present here, that the words that are spoken by me will not be from me, but that they will be guided by you, and that our ears will hear what you want us to hear, that we might be in tune with you and be fulfilling all righteousness as we seek to be fully surrendered to Jesus. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Too many pieces of equipment that I have to put in here, and I'm always forgetting one of them. But uh, let's sing our song for today. Let's see if this is going to work as usual. Remember? Oh, by the way, there are three stanzas today. Now, if you're paying any attention to the stanzas, there is a reason for them. And pay attention to the third one, because it does have something, a message for us today, which is why I have not yet played that stanza or put it up on there. Wait for the... That's a very interesting problem that I just developed right now. The problem is that I'm hearing it here, but you aren't hearing it there. Well, folks, we're going to sing it a cappella today, because I'm not going to play with this for the rest of the day. So, if I can get it to work, I will. But anyway, here we go. Open my eyes that I may see glimpses of truth thou hast for me. Place in my hands the wonderful key that shall unclasp and set me free. Silently now I wait for thee, ready, my God, thy will to see. Open my eyes, illumine me, Spirit divine. Open my eyes that I may hear voices of truth, thou sendest clear. Bring the wave notes fall on my ear, now everything will disappear. Brightly now I wait for thee, ready, my God, thy will to see. Open my ears, illumine me, Spirit divine. Open my mouth and let me bear. Gladly the warm truth everywhere. Open my heart and let me prepare. Love with thy children thus 
to share. Silently now I wait for thee, ready, my God, thy will to see. Open my ears, illumine me, Spirit divine. Well, now do you see the progression? Eyes, ears, now it's time to talk. Time to share what we know, and that's, uh, that's part of it. As you leave here, share the good news of the righteousness of Christ. It is good news. It is the good news of the gospel. And that's what we need to know. Ellen White said in Christian Experience and Teachings of Ellen, of, of Ellen White, it's recorded there, at this time the church is to put on her beautiful garments, Christ our righteousness. There are clear, decided distinctions to be restored and exemplified to the world in holding aloft the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. The beauty of holiness is to appear in its native luster in contrast with the deformity and darkness of the disloyal. Those who have revolted from the law, those who have revolted from the law of God, namely the disloyal. It is time for the message of Christ our righteousness to be clearly presented in God's church. Of course, the big challenge is that we've had a lot of confusion over that message. That's what we've been talking about today, yesterday, I should say yesterday and the days before. It's also part of what I talked about a year ago, the camp meeting. And uh, for me, it's part of a journey. It may be a journey even for you, the way that God is leading and working for us. You know, there was a movie that came out according to the news. I did not see that movie. I want that to be very clear. But in the news, there was a movie that came out, um, something about some superhero here recently. And the interesting thing about it is that more money was spent on that movie and watching that movie than had ever been spent on any movie before. I'm not talking about preparing the movie. I mean people going to watch the movie. What does that tell me? It tells me this world is desperate for a superhero. Multiple superheroes. Maybe they want to be superheroes. I don't know what the case may be. But the bottom line is there's already been a superhero. The one that we only superhero we need. The one who defeated the devil on his own territory. No, it's God's territory. But the devil's claiming it is his. And the devil is trying to give us a false superhero. But the Bible clearly tells us that Jesus Christ is the one who is the answer to our problems and the one who can give us the wonderful gift of eternal life. I want to take a few moments and just backtrack over our journey because it is helpful for us to keep our perspective. We'll be doing a little bit of backtracking today, but only briefly. 
First of all, the question is, where have we been? So let's retrace our steps. Can you see that slide okay? I'm from the angle. It's a little glary, but I think it's okay. Those of you over here may be having a little trouble seeing it, too. Uh, it's in your notes. Everybody got the notes? Did we run out at all? Yay, we didn't. Good. In Monday's class, we surveyed the Bible and the spirit of prophecy teaching on the theology of Christ, our righteousness. We saw from the Bible why Ellen White said, the Lord in his great mercy sent a most precious message to his people. It invited the people to receive the righteousness of Christ, which is made manifest in obedience. On Tuesday, we looked at the time from 1888 to 1900 and saw that the church was introduced to the message of justification by faith. The latter rain began to fall and the third angel's message sounded and the loud cry began to be proclaimed, proclaiming the message of Christ, our righteousness. On Wednesday, we saw that our theology on Christ, our righteousness, changed a little from 1900 to 1950. But the fact, that fact is itself significant, and a survey of our teaching during that time clarified that this doctrine was known, but it was not the focus that the leaders realized it need to be, needed to be. And they realized that the message had not been accepted and practiced by the church. A.G. Daniels, in his uh, book, Christ Our Righteousness, was written to help recenter the church's focus on this most precious message. Yesterday, we studied the time of the 1950s, looking at one of the most destabilizing events in our history. That's a quote from Douglas's book, who was quoting also um, Dr. Knight, George Knight. Recognizing it as a one of the most destabilizing events in our history, if not the most destabilizing event in our history, which occurred with the development of the printing of the book, Questions on Doctrine. The church, during this time, began a time of unprecedented doctrinal change that still affects us today. This, though, today is just the beginning of the final step. Today we need to answer the question, what now? And what difference does it make? We need to ask a couple other questions along the way too. Are there theological conclusions that we can safely make? What should I, as an individual Seventh-day Adventist member, do? What should the church do with the information that we have been discussing? What is God's plan for His church in these last days? Those are pretty steep goals for today. Uh, I have 45 minutes to get those done. Part of them have actually already been done because you have been studying all along what we've been talking about, starting with the presentation of Christ our righteousness in the beginning. So there already is a foundation laid that makes it pretty clear to us, and that's what I want to remind you of to start with. I know I'm putting back up on the screen what we've already talked about. Some of you have come into the class late, and you've missed some of that discussion. 
But that isn't even my point. My point is the answer to what we should be doing is very simple. We should be doing what the Bible says we should be doing. It's that simple. Oh, you say, yeah, that's that simple. Uh, obviously, we should be doing that. Well, it is that simple. It is simple. The gospel is not complicated. As I said on Monday, we are the ones who've made it complicated. And how have we made it complicated? By going in and trying to bring in various lines of theology and thinking that hasn't clearly been delineated already. So let's just review it very, very quickly. We're sinners condemned to die. The Bible verses are here. Today, I put the Bible verses back in because I want you to have this in your notes. And I do apologize, by the way, for the copies that they're a little dark. My, uh, my apologies for that. But I think you can still see them and you can still see, read them. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. One of the discussion questions that needs to be answered, and my challenge to you today, is that you need to continue your journey because I could not address every single issue that has been raised and that is uh, associated with this issue. We've talked a little bit about it, but we haven't addressed every single one of the issues. And that has to do with the nature of sin, the original, original sin, and all those kinds of things that are part of this, that's part of the journey. But we're all sinners condemned to die because we've all sinned. Simple statement of fact. What is a sinner? Sinner is one who has violated the law of God. And we're reminded that sin is the opposite of righteousness. Therefore, because we are sinners, we have violated the law of God. We are not righteous. We need to be righteous, though, because the law is righteous. And in order for us to have life, and especially to have eternal life, we have to be holy, just, and good. But that's impossible for a sinner. Right? You're hesitant. I will state, state this very unequivocally. It is impossible for a sinner to be righteous. Christ alone is righteous. Are you with me? You're still hesitant. You think I'm being tricky. I'm not being tricky. All right, you're with me. Good. All right, that's, that's good. If sin is breaking the law and the law is righteous, then we need to be righteous if we are to solve the problem of sin. You said that doesn't make sense with what I just said. Yes, it makes all the sense in the world. The problem is that we are not righteous. This problem is solved by God. Yes? Because God has provided us with a gift. Romans 6.23 tells us that we are sinners and we are condemned to die but then it says the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord hallelujah Amen. praise the Lord there's a solution to the problem the gift of his son brings forgiveness for sin 
If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Ephesians 1 verse 7 tells us, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. Christ is God's gift to us. Christ is righteous. And according to Jeremiah 23 and 9, 7 and Romans uh, and Daniel 9, 7 and Romans 3, the source of righteousness is our Lord Jesus Christ. We find redemption in him who came with his blood that he might shed it, that we might have by faith his righteousness. He demonstrated his righteousness. And because of this, God has provided this wonderful gift to us. Christ is God's gift to us. Christ is righteous. And with him comes sanctification and redemption. When we accept the gift of Christ, his righteousness is part of the gift. Romans 5.17 says, For if one by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who received receive abundance of grace, and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. I don't have to make this up. I don't have to get confused. The Bible is clear. We receive the gift of righteousness by our works. making sure you're still with me. By faith. Paul says in Romans 3 again, through faith in Jesus Christ, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. Philippians, Philippians 3 verse 9, the righteousness which is from God by faith. We receive the gift of righteousness by faith, according to Paul in Romans 1, 16 and 17. He says, for it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. That famous passage of Scripture that started the Reformation. With power. It had dawnings before that, but this was... Martin Luther's mantra, and it should be ours as well. Abraham is an example, according to Paul, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. We see many examples in the Bible that make it clear to us that righteousness can be applied to people who have lived by faith in Jesus Christ, even in the Old Testament. We receive the gift of righteousness again by faith, according to Paul in Romans 8, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. When you look at Romans chapter 8, you find the Christian living a life that is empowered by Christ through the Holy Spirit working in our lives because the Christian has turned their back on sin, not by their own power, but by Christ, because Christ is dwelling in them. The sin is 
in the past. Paul says this. I mean, Jesus, uh, Ellen White says this. Get this straight here. We read this verse uh, passage before, and in, I'm just going to go to the bottom part here. You cannot hallow His name. You cannot represent Him to the world unless in life and character you represent the very life and character of God. This you can do only through the acceptance of the grace and righteousness of Christ. I hope that one thing is very clear as it will continue to be with what we will share. There is nothing of you and me and anything that we're talking about here. It is all Christ. Now we know, I know that in my humanity, I look at this and I say, this is almost fanciful. But I, by faith, aha, by faith, I have to believe the impossible is possible because I'm a sinner. But Christ is righteous. And the whole presentation is about Christ, our righteousness, not Royce, your righteousness, not whoever, you, your righteousness. It's about Christ, our righteousness. In Isaiah 61, verse 10, we're reminded that our righteousness of God is a robe that we put on or that He puts on us. When we accept the robe of Christ's righteousness that He gives to us through forgiveness of sin, we receive not only forgiveness of sin, but it also removes our sin. The illustration from Zechariah chapter 3 makes that clear. When we accept the robe of Christ's righteousness and He removes the sin, it says in Zechariah 3, 4, and 5, Then He answered and spoke to those who stood before Him, Take away the filthy garments from Him. And to Him He said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. Because our robes are ragged, Nasty, dirty, filthy robes are replaced by Christ's righteousness. That's good news. That's good news. But the problem, of course, comes that we still seem to think that the robe that's placed on us just simply covers over our sin and we continue to live that way until Jesus returns. The latest in church is prepared for Christ's return by putting on the robe of Christ our righteousness, which is why John, through the angel, through Christ coming to him and giving him the message of the, to the Laodicean church, which is you and me, he says in Revelation 3, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with salve that you may see as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. The Laodicean church is the last of the seven. There are none to follow. There is a remedy for the problem of sin. In Revelation 3, Jesus is the faithful and true witness. He is the solution to the problem. And He says, I'm going to spit you out because you think you're okay when you're not. But the good news is, I, Jesus Christ, am just fine and I have everything that you need. 
the end of Revelation, it says, Blessed are those who do His commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. That happens only because of the righteousness that Christ gives to us. So that's the foundation that we laid at the beginning. I've rehearsed it with you today, reviewed it along the way, and today we need to answer some of those questions. Let me just refresh your mind and the fact that Questions on Doctrine's book had an impact not only on the past, but it continues to have an impact on the present. I think that was pretty clear from what we did yesterday. There has been fallout, and it should be recognized. A failure to recognize the fallout is to realize, not realize that there's a real problem around us. A number of years ago, I went to, uh, I went to Ukraine and was part of a mission project uh, uh, process there. No time to talk about all of that. Part of the journey, we were learning how to do things together and working together, and then we broke up into teams. We were dealing with Sabbath School Action Unit, uh, uh, things that we would go out to the churches and we would uh, minister there. Uh, many of us from the states, uh, many from Michigan, many from other places, went and we were doing the teaching and we had uh, translators and so on. Some people went to Russia. I stayed in Ukraine. One of the things that I, what my journey took me I didn't realize quite how close, but a lot closer to a place called Chernobyl. Now, I don't know if you know, but Chernobyl had fallout from a radiation event. And um, fallout can impact people's lives. Now, fortunately, I was there for a very brief period of time. But my point in telling you that is, as they researched this over the years, the impact on people's lives was catastrophic. We're not talking about radiation. We're talking about sin and confusion. It has impact on people's lives, and it can last for eternity. We've got to get it right. We can't just assume we can continue on the way we are until we walk into the kingdom of heaven. I believe, personally, that we will not walk into the kingdom of heaven anytime soon until we get it right. Now, what do I mean by get it right? I mean by coming to an understanding of what our theology is supposed to be, and I'll give you evidence of that today. First of all, as we have talked about, but I'm bringing out a couple of points that we didn't particularly talk about, and that is there were two attempts to rewrite Adventist history at this time when Question on Doctrines uh, came out and then the years that followed. One was an attempt to explain why Jesus came as he did and the significance of his high, high priestly ministry. Now, I understand there's a lot of other discussions going around in other classes, and unfortunately, I'm not... I don't have the time to be able to attend all those classes, but I love the reports I'm getting back. And one of the classes, uh, well, one of the general sessions today, I understand by Brother Shin, was talking about the fallout of this particular event and trying to get that straight. Namely, that we need to understand what Christ did when He went to the heavenly sanctuary. Sanctuary, but her, um, well, I always want to say Herbert Ford. Uh, there actually was a Herbert Ford, but it wasn't him. 
it was uh, Desmond Ford and uh, all the challenges that went along with that. Number two, and this one I want to read because I want you to catch this piece. Douglas says, the concurrent reluctance to review the theological detour that occurred. Folks, um, I don't want to fault anybody because I'm part of us, and so are you. Okay, I want to make sure you understand we're all us, right? We're all human beings struggling along the journey to get where God wants us to be. Struggling only because we struggle in our flesh instead of being allowing the Spirit of God to be leading us. I'm part of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and I'm so privileged to be a part of it. But it's easy for us to fall into something that had impact on us and we don't even realize it was there. Many of our leaders along the way have had the same struggles the rest of us do. I believe that God is going to get this straightened out because He's big enough to do it. I'll come back to that in a moment. But the problem is that after 1957, articles and, and uh, also in, um, teaching in academic classrooms suggested that, the 18, that 1888 was Adventists finally discovering the so-called Protestant Reformers' emphasis on righteousness by faith. Douglas says, nothing was farther from the truth. This line of reasoning, wherever taught or preached, poisons any genuine study of that remarkable conference. Further, it, was locked, it has locked the door on what Ellen White called a most precious message, a message that would prepare a people for translation. Someday, he says, that door will be unlocked. Personally, I believe it will be unlocked. The problem is that we... There are places where you can't even use the word 1888, okay? And I'm not talking about one of those boxes that I mentioned yesterday. I'm not talking about getting in one of those boxes. Ladies and gentlemen, what year is it now? It is the year 2019. Did you know that somewhere in the past, before 2019, was the year 1888? May I talk about 1888 without somebody coming to all kinds of conclusions and ramifications? Can we just talk about the fact that something happened in 1888 and we need to talk about it? Thank you. <laughs> Douglas goes on and says on page 86 of his book, he suggests that the worldwide proliferation of groups who have responded to the flaws in QOD would not have seen the light of day had questions on doctrine not been published. I don't know if I got all the sentence in there right, but that's the basic idea. Just an overview uh, of the history of our church and the theology since 1960s. Uh, again, coming from Douglas, uh, many teachers, he says, pastors and lay people continued to see the issues clearly, that one cannot separate or reframe Christology without immediately affecting one's eschatology. All right, theological speak. But what he's saying is what I believe about Christ believes what I believe about what God is going to happen at the end of time. And wh how that 
process is going to affect me in my spiritual walk. Some people understood that you couldn't change the Bible's Christology and the spirit of prophecy's references to Christology and the, and the nature of Christ and other things without changing the end result. And that's what the point is that he's trying to make. Then he says, an amazing spirit of retaliation against those who differed from QOD soon was endemic. Publications came out speaking of perfection as impossible while in sinful flesh. New definition, definitions of perfection surfaced taking the place of time-honored understanding of human cooperation with divine power in overcoming sin here and now. What Douglas is saying is when the discussion after questions on doctrine, not before, but when the questions on doctrine discussion generated all kinds of things, when people started using these words, all kinds of variations started to develop. And the challenge was that the idea of human cooperation with divine power in overcoming sin all of a sudden took a back seat and became impossible. And yet the Bible and the spirit, for, uh, spirit of prophecy are very clear on those topics. Douglas uh, had a couple of uh, notes in here, and I've put a note in your notes that also says a must-read is the chapter uh, 50 Years of Muddle on pages 85 to 92, because I don't have time to go through that. But it is powerful reading, and it's simple enough for all of us to understand. And if there are a couple of words that you might have a struggle with because you don't have that, quote, theological background, just look them up and it will be clear to you and you'll be able to see it. But it's not that contrasting. You need to get that book. And uh, I want to remind you of being able to do that. What did I just hear? Fork in the road. Correct. Now I want to summarize Douglas's response to this whole issue. And I think that this is important to help us. Regarding the mistakes of the past, Douglas says, remember... He says, remember that the Adventist trio and their conferees were not trained theologians. They were trying to help God's work, not hurt it. They were indefatigable workers for the church. As I told you yesterday, they were personal friends of Herbert Douglas. They sat together, they worked together, they ate together, um, they prayed together, but they did have differences along the way. They were personal friends. But he recognized that they had some limitations, not realizing the dangerous ground they were walking onto, as we described yesterday. Then he says, remember that every theological system is based on people's presuppositions. You and I come at the study of the Bible with what we already know. That's what he's saying, or think we know. Remember that the Adventist system is based on the great controversy theme, based on the whole Bible and further illuminated by the writings of Ellen White. The sanctuary doctrine, according to Dr. Fernando Canali of the seminary, is the clearest... Is he still there, by the way? I think he is. Is the clearest way to unfold the coherency and unity of this theme. I'm not sure he's... At, anyway, I'm a little confused on that. Don't worry about it. He also goes on and says, remember above all else that the prophetic assignment of the Seventh-day Adventist Church as outlined in Revelation 7, 13, and 14 will be fulfilled by some generation of Adventists who recovers its distinctive message as outlined in the Great Controversy theme. Remember, he says, that thought leaders such as F.D. Nickel, Branson, Cottrell, Neufeld, Andreasen, Wood, 
of the 1950 years had built their Adventist thinking on the basic interlocking logic of the great controversy theme. To dismiss such leaders is hardly possible unless their emphasis and conclusions have been shown to be invalid and contrary to a new and better way of doing Adventist theology since 1957. I want to just talk about that for a minute. Remember the list yesterday? The lunatic lunatic fringe? What he is saying is that these individuals were leaders in the church of God, theologians, many of them, spiritual leaders, administrators, writers, authors, etc., individuals who had built um, what they believed on that great controversy theme. And he says, unless there's a better way to do theology and we need to change it all, we need to be careful that we don't just put them back on the back burner as though they didn't matter. Either they were right or, or the theology that's developed since then is right, but they can't both be right. Remember that a Christian theology can always be judged by its eschatology, that is, the teaching regarding end times. And in quotes, quoting him, how one thinks about the humanity of Christ most often affects one's view of what God expects out of his people in the last days. I can't, in the time that we have here, I can't sort out all of those things. We don't have time to untangle all the issues related to the nature of Christ and Christ our righteousness and the nature of sin and all of that. We are not trying to do that. It has been my personal belief that the journey that we've been on in the last few days is critical for you to understand the history of your church, not so that you can figure out who to blame, but so that you can figure out that you need to go to the Word of God and figure out who to trust. The Word of God is your source of trust. Jesus Christ is our righteousness. You and I must answer to Jesus for what He has given us in His Word, not for what somebody else has taught us. But I want to put you on alert that Something has happened in the Seventh-day Adventist church. And I believe God, as I've said before, is going to lead us down the track that's going to get us back to a united state in relationship to this. Not the United States, but a united state of uh, working together and working as God intended that we should. I want to share some inspired thoughts with you that I believe will help to put this all in perspective, some of which we have shared before. The end is near. We have not a moment to lose. Light is to shine forth from God's people in clear, distinct rays, bringing Jesus before the the churches and before the world. Our work is not to be restricted to those who already know the truth. Our field is the world. That's why I'm saying when we sang the song today, It's time for us to talk about the wonderful message of Christ, our righteousness, and to let the world know it. There's a reason why many people were converted 
in Armadale, Melbourne, Australia, when Prescott preached, because he preached the, the uh, message of Christ our righteousness and brought into it all the teachings of the Word of God that surrender around it that we believe. But when they saw the righteousness of Christ, it changed their hearts and their lives. We still preach our theology which is right in terms of the Sabbath and all these other things. But sometimes we're preaching without the clear message of Christ, our righteousness, and that is hurting our message. So much so that the Michigan Conference has made a decision to rewrite our evangelistic messages to include the message of Christ, our righteousness. Amen. We'd hope to have it done for Jesus on prophecy, which is why the title is there. But unfortunately, it's just not enough time to get it all done. So it's going to have to be on the next round. But doesn't mean we can't preach it in there anyway, right? We just haven't gotten the sermons all written so that anybody can take them and use them. At any rate, keep going. The instrumentalities to be used are those whose souls who gladly receive the light of truth which God communicates to them. These are God's agencies for communicating the knowledge of truth to the world. If, gra if, gra through, <laughs> if through the grace of Christ, His people will become new bottles, He will fill them with new wine. God will give additional light and old truths will be recovered and replaced in the framework of truth and replaced in the framework of truth. And wherever the laborers go, they will triumph. As Christ's ambassadors, they are to search the scriptures, to seek for the truths that have been hidden beneath the rubbish of error. And every ray of light received is to be communicated to others. One interest will prevail. One subject will swallow up every other. Christ, our righteousness. By beholding in a, the character of Christ, you will become changed into His likeness. The grace of Christ alone can change your heart, and then you will reflect the image of the Lord Jesus. God calls upon His us to be like Him, pure, holy, and undefiled. We are to bear the divine image. You can't do that. Oh, now I should have gotten an amen out of that. You can't do that. But Christ can do that. God will give additional light and old truths will be covered and replaced in the frame. Wasn't that what I just read? Yeah, more or less. Anyway, no repentance is genuine that does not work reformation. The righteousness of Christ is not a cloak to cover unconfessed and unforsaken sin. Did you catch that? So what I said earlier is reinforced by desire of ages. It's not a robe to cover our sin. Do you understand? It is a principle of life that transforms the character and controls the conduct. The gospel of Jesus Christ, Christ our righteousness, states that sin is not to exist in us when we surrender fully to the Lord Jesus Christ. The power of the gospel, by faith, folks, by faith, is far more powerful than we tend to think of it. The Calvinists can't get that. They don't understand that. It's a real power, but it's clearly there when you read about the faith that 
people had in Jesus. It's the same faith that the centurion had, that Abraham had, that Abel had, that, the, the, that Elijah had, that Moses had, that Paul had, that made them be able to be considered righteous, not because of their power and their strength, because Christ is their righteousness that they accepted by faith. Holiness is wholeness before for God. It is the entire surrender of heart and life to the indwelling of the principles of heaven. Christ imputes to us his sinless, his sinless character and presents us to the Father in his purity. There are many who think that it is impossible to escape from the power of sin. But the promise is that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. We aim too low. Review and Herald, August 22, 1893, Ellen White. That date is significant, folks. That date is significant because it was right at the time. 1888 was just five years before. During this time, they were having the discussions about this whole thing of righteousness by faith and Christ our righteousness. Ellen White, Jones, Wagner, Prescott, and others were talking about the power of the gospel, and there was revival going on in the church. There were others who were bickering about it, and Ellen White warned them repeatedly, if you don't stop that bickering of yours, and you don't stop your condemnation of this message, you're going to be lost. That's what she said. That clearly. And she was speaking to people like Uriah Smith, because there are letters to Uriah Smith and others that she gave that warning to. This was 1893 that she said this. This message was coming to its fullness, and God wanted His church to understand that. The significance of that I'll come back to in a couple of minutes. When Christ is in the heart, it will be so softened and subdued by love for God and man that fretting, faulting, and contention will not exist there. The religion of Christ in the heart will gain for its possessor a complete victory over those possessions that are seeking for the mastery. Now, I want to read that sentence again. It says, The religion of Christ in the heart will gain for its possessor at least a partial victory over those passions that are seeking for the mastery. All right. You don't think I read it right, so let's read it together. The religion, you with me? Of Christ in the heart will gain for its possessor a complete victory over those passions that are seeking for the mastery. It's not me. It's not you. Christ Jesus gained the mastery. When I surrender to Him, His gift of righteousness is given to me. But it's not just a cloak over my sin. He comes with His righteousness to replace my inadequacy and to be able to give me power over sin to gain victory. Those are the words that are there. She says, this robe woven in the loom of heaven has in it not one thread of human devising. Christ, in his humanity, wrought out a perfect character, and this character he offers to, what's the word? If you follow along in this study, 
you'll notice that many a times we've been talking about to imputed righteousness. Have you caught that? Imputed righteousness is what God gives to us when we come to Him and we surrender to Him. Um, For simplicity, I will say the first time. In other words, it's justification by faith. That's that part that what He imputes to us. Ellen White says that justification by faith is the work of a moment. Okay? Justification is the work of a moment. It is when God imputes His righteousness to us. And then she says that Christ, um, that sanctification is the work of a... Oh, you've read this before. The work of a lifetime. And she says this is when Christ imparts to us. Do you understand now? So when she is saying here, offers to impart to us, she is talking about the work of sanctification in our lives. All our righteousness are as filthy rags, quoting Isaiah. Everything that we of ourselves can do is defiled by sin. But the Son of God was manifested to take away our sins, and in Him is no sin. Sin is defined by the transgression of the law, but Christ was obedient to every requirement of the law. He said of Himself, I delight to do Thy will, O my God. Yea, Thy law is within my heart. When on earth He said to His disciples, I have kept my Father's commandments, By His perfect obedience, He has made it possible for every human being to obey God's commandments. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with His heart. The will is merged in His will. The mind becomes one with His mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to Him. We live His life. That does not sound like a robe co-loking over my sin. Those were my words, by the way. This is what it means to be clothed with a garment of His righteousness. Then as the Lord looks upon us, He sees not the fig leaf, not the nakedness and deformity of sin, but His own robe of righteousness, which is perfect obedience to the law of Jehovah. He can't say that if we are wearing His robe while we are robbing a bank. It's power in the gospel, folks. That's what God is trying to share with us. All right. I've read this statement several times. I will spare you reading it again all the way through. Just part of it. The Lord in His great mercy sent a most precious message to His people through elders Wagner and Jones. This message was to bring more prominently before the world the uplifted Savior, the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. It presented justification by faith in the surety. It invited the people to receive the righteousness of Christ, which is made manifest in obedience to all the commandments of God. When I taught this class last year, somebody came to me after one of the classes and said they were communicating with one of our former pastors who had retired and was living in another state. That's all I'll say about that in terms of geography and identification. They were talking to that pastor, and they said that he said that he, in his church, would once in a while bring up this subject and even the names of Jones and Wagner, and they banned him from even discussing it. A retired minister 
talking about this, just using these names. It's like telling you you can't talk about 1888. Jones and Wagner, you know what? That was the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ that was given to us, Ellen White, who used their names. If I am now suddenly in a situation where I can't do it, it is proof of what Douglas said when he said, just talking about it today, uh, because of what has happened through questions on doctrine, etc., has poisoned people's minds where you can't even use the names in a historical context without being ostracized. Now, that tells you there's something wrong someplace. All right? These gentlemen were no saints. And they eventually left the church. There's no question about it. But the message they preached in 1888 and the years that followed and supported by and taught by Ellen White and the Word of God clearly you and I need to be paying attention to. Sorry, I'm getting a little passionate, but some things really begin to concern me. I thought I had that at the end, but anyway, this is good. I want a couple, make a couple of suggestions here. How do we solve this problem? By getting on the phone and writing angry letters about what we think took place? Notice I said we think took place. You and I need to understand. We're all human beings. I was not there. I have to go on the authority of those who were there. I have to go on the basis of study. But I have to realize that we're talking about children of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether they made mistakes in the past or not is only relevant to us if it helps to guide us to make sure we're on the right track and that we're studying the Word of God correctly. But not so that we can go back and haul up their ashes like the Catholics did with uh, John Wycliffe and burn the, them, uh, the, the bones and burn the, uh, them so that they can take the ashes and throw them in a river. That's not what we're about. We simply want to come back to the truth and get that clear in our minds. And I say back to because I want to share some implications with you. I think we need to, we need to pray and fast. I think we need to be careful students of the Bible and the spirit of prophecy, and we need to build our personal relationship with Jesus Christ because that's the only relationship that's going to make a difference when we come to entering the kingdom of heaven. So I want to give you some conclusions. Uh, This is risky, but I think you deserve some conclusions. I want you to know that I'm speaking for me. I'm not speaking for any Michigan Conference pastor or any other human being on the planet Earth. I'm speaking for me right now. These are just some conclusions that I believe to be accurate. If you think I'm wrong, you are welcome to come and talk to me. If I'm wrong, I'm willing to admit I'm wrong because I want to get it right. I want to know the truth and I want it to be clear. I want it to be what the Bible teaches and the spirit of prophecy teaches. These are the conclusions that I've arrived at. Ellen White clearly endorsed endorsed the message of God's messengers that was shared in 1888 and the years that followed. That message brought major revivals to camp meetings across the United States from 1888 to 1889 through 1892 and beyond. Clearly, Ellen White said that the latter reign had begun with this message and that it was the third angel's message in verity and that the loud cry had begun. 
Now, I especially place the emphasis on this in my class from last year, and I believe the teaching out there is very clear on that. We haven't really gotten into all the nitty-gritty that would establish that, but I have shared a little bit of that in this journey. She said that the message was to prepare God's people for Christ's imminent return. She said that Christ could have come if the message had been accepted. A.G. Daniels clearly understood that the message needed to be accepted in the 1920s, and he identified the message in his book, Christ Our Righteousness. He, by the way, was there. I'm going to trust his analysis of what the message was because he was there. Clearly, in 1957, the book Questions on Doctrine took the theology of the Seventh-day Adventist Church in a very different direction. Whether you agree with that or not, in terms of the theology that came out of that, that's what I mean. The fact of the matter is, up until that point, we were going one direction. Afterwards, we went a different direction. That's historical fact. Therefore, if the theology taught from 1888 to 1957 could have prepared us for Christ's return, and that theology has taken a dramatic turn from the theology that would have readied God's people for Christ's return, is it too much of a statement for me to say, me to say, the only safe theology is that which was endorsed and proven theology of that time? Did you get the conclusion that I made? Yeah. In other words, it is so clear to me, speaking for me, that what Ellen White taught and what was taught by our leaders who had accepted the message, and I need to put that part there, that were also encouraged to continue to share that message by the president of the General Conference in 1901 through 1922, what he wrote in 1924, clearly makes it clear to me, sorry about the double use of words there, it makes it clear to me that the message that was shared back then was the message that God wanted to be shared, and it was supported, and it, we've changed away from that message. I don't know how else to look at it. That's my conclusion. Looking at what O.A. Olson Quoted in Wounded in the House of His Friends, page 118, which was a quotation from the General Conference Bulletin, uh, Daily Bulletin of February 8, 1893, a significant date again. President of the General Conference of the time, he made this statement that somehow seems to be prophetic. But if we fail at one time, the Lord will take us over the ground again and if we fail a second time, he will take us over the ground again. And if we fail a third time, the Lord will take us over the same ground again. And this is my version. And if we fail a fourth time, he will take us over the ground again. And if we fail a fifth time, he will take us over the ground again. Isn't it time to stop failing? 
Why is he thus taking us over the ground again and again? For what purpose? It is that we may lay hold of his grace and overcome. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Anything else than this is our ruin and destruction. The character and the mind of Christ must be developed in us before we are prepared to live with him. God be praised then that he is dealing with us so faithfully and plainly. Aren't you glad you serve a wonderful, caring, loving God who is patient with His people? But we also serve a God who knows the stakes of the great controversy. And He knows that the stakes are so high that He has one chance to get it right so that sin will never again raise its ugly head. In order to be able to get it right, he needs us to listen to his voice and to follow what he's been trying to tell us all along the way. I want to ask you, please, to make this a matter of prayer and fasting and dedication in your life, that you will not go looking for who to blame, but how to get it right and to realize that Jesus is the answer to our journey and to our problems. Are you willing to make that commitment today? I'm talking about the prayer and the fasting. I'm talking about the searching, the Bible study. That's what I'm talking about. Okay? God will help you. He'll help you with the prayer and fasting. Put it in the right context. But God is going to help us go in the right direction. I encourage you between now and the end of camp meeting, take advantage of the opportunity that we have here with the prayer chapel to go there and spend time even now, maybe in small groups or family units or whatever. Let's pray, pray, pray that God is going to lead us through to the end. He's promised He will. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for being with us on this journey of the last few days. Thank you for these uh, dear hearts that are gathered in this place searching out, seeking to understand. Lord, we're all human beings. We're capable of making mistakes, but we know that God will never, ever allow us to make that same mistake ourselves that will lead us away from you if we are faithful to be fully surrendered to you. I pray, Lord, that the uh, angels of heaven will help us, that you will keep us, that where we do make mistakes along the way, that you will correct us. We are willing to be corrected, Lord, we want to do what is right, but we also realize we cannot do it without Christ, our righteousness, if with whom all things are possible. As we leave this place, go with us, we pray, in the loving name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.